Before, I should tell one more story, before, before that, September 6th, before Daniel left, he'd run into um, Elder Packer in the park. You know, Elder Packer had run into his father in the parking lot, but argued with Hartman Richter Jr. for not controlling his son more and getting him to quit Sunstone. And then, I guess Elder Hartman Richter Jr. had had a conversation with Elder Oaks about this also. So Daniel got mad because he felt... Why are these people getting on my dad? My dad doesn't have... I'm an adult. My dad doesn't control me. So he called Elder Oaks and asked for an audience with Elder Oaks. This is after the alternate voices talk. So it's maybe 90. Maybe 90. 91, maybe. Um, I'm getting all these years wrong, but it doesn't matter. Um, so Daniel goes and has his audience with Elder Oaks. And it's very interesting. Elder Oaks had taken the current symposium program and had categorized everything as as non-theological or non-religious, you know, something like an environmentalism or something. To um, and then he had for all the others he had a spectrum from apostasy to questionable to this to this to to innocuous, and it sp- spread them out. And um, and for a while, Elder Packer came in and joined the conversation with Daniel and Elder Oaks, and. Uh, but Daniel, both of them were pretty, um, were pretty clear that on the far right of the spectrum, the, the far end of the spectrum was talking about the temple. That is the most radioactive thing you can do. And they said any t- discussion in the temple, any discussion in the temple is off limits. And then theology was the next category. And theology is really, is really a questionable project unless you're teaching the theology, the official theology of the church. And then they went on to history and other things. And when they were talking about theology, according to Daniel, Elder Packer said, well, that's what their really agenda is. They want to change the theology of the church. And so I think they clearly see, whereas certainly Daniel and I, and most people, maybe most people at Sunstone, felt that this was a discussion group. They clearly saw it as an advocacy group, trying to tell the brethren how to run the church and how it should be changed. So they were very defensive about that. So they issued the statement on symposia which um, brought a lot of response. You know, Gene England and Ed Kimball at BYU wrote a letter explaining how that wasn't, the statement wasn't really about Sunstone because Sunstone doesn't do the things that they list in the statement and published it in the Daily Universe at BYU, which I'm sure made the brother furious at Gene. And, um, and um, it became harder after that to get subscribers came harder, and, and some people canceled, but not many. Most people, that, 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 to cancel a subscription requires an active act, and most humans are, like ourselves, lazy. They, they don't cancel a subscription, they just don't renew when it comes around. And, um, and so uh, renewals can start to drop off after that, and it was harder to get the BYU people who we really liked partly because they were academics and they raised our level of discourse as well as being moderates. 
And uh, the year right after the symposium, there were a lot of academics who were mad at the statement on symposia, who kind of girded up their loins and said, if they can't do this, sign me up to speak this year. You know, there were just a lot of heroics of faculty who would call and insisted to be in the symposium that year. And that was nice. Uh, but that didn't last long. You know, it just became a hard battle. You know, the sociology department at BYU once issued a, a letter from the whole department defending their participation in Sunstone because they thought it was good. But then a year or two later when they had two empty vacancies in the department and neither of their candidates were accepted by the Board of Trustees and they were told, well, we're basically punishing you for Sunstone. You know, and so the people who didn't participate in Sunstone really got on the case of the faculty who did and said, you know, you're just killing our department. You know, we, we've got to be able to hire people and stuff like this. And so there were a lot of really hard institutional processes at BYU that made even the tenured, even most tenured people feel like that they, it just wasn't worth the hassle of speaking at Sunstone. And anyone who didn't have tenure, I mean, that was like death. And later, it really became part of the review process. You wouldn't even be given a slot at BYU if you'd speak, spoken at Sunstone, or you really had to show, uh, make a huge argument why, why you should be hired. So BYU pretty well dried up. And also other, um, some mainstream Mormons. Uh, the, you know, to do something at Sunstone, there was, to cross the line and say, I'll participate in Sunstone, was always an affirmative act. But the emotional, social, theological, institutional threshold of doing it was pretty low, and it didn't require a huge step to do that. But afterwards, you were almost making a statement about who you are vis-a-vis the church, and so it was a huger, huger wall to, to cross to do something with Sunstone, and for most people it's just not worth even that internal emotional hassle, hassle or maybe the hassle with your spouse, or, or your job. You know, some people told me, you know, who, who'd spoken years at Sunstone, um, I like Sunstone, I want it to continue. And, um, but I'm online to be a mission president in a year or two, and I don't want to ruin that chance. And I can't really blame them for making that kind of choice. But in the process, um, the breadth of the symposium uh, narrowed. And, um, and, uh, and the number of subscribers to the magazine narrowed. And the number of people who left who were angry at what was happening increased. Uh, and so you had the organizations like, um, oh, what's the organization? The Levina. Um, uh, the one about abuse? Yeah, but organizational abuse. It's kind of like the ACLU for, it'll come to me. Yeah. Shows you how far I've been from all of the sources. So they rose up and presented more and more papers. And so the discussion of the, and which was, had a defensive tone to it all, of defending our right to speak and defending this sort of, would, would come up. And those were hard times. We, we lost a lot of support. Uh, and in the end, the brethren won. They certainly achieved what they wanted. They knocked Sunstone off of a growth model. And um, and I think perhaps this was inevitable in some way. Um, certainly the details of the September 6th, the people being called into the excommunications, um, which was in 93. I guess the statement symposium came in 91. Um, 93, um, those... Um, 
Uh, that, that was a that was a hard time. That was the symposium again, and um, there I don't think you had a whole joint statement, a decision from the brethren of what to do. I think you had primarily Elder Packer deciding. Well, they still haven't learned their lesson from the statement on symposia, but things start downhill after the statement on symposia. Uh, so we need to really show these people that that there is a line, and some of them have crossed it. So they picked out those people. Um, some of them were for symposium things, some of them for articles that they had in the newspaper, uh, or quotes that they said in the newspaper, some were just generally about their, their involvement. Um, but one by one, the person got called in for a court. Um, and, some, and here again, see the church is not happy with the independent voices, whether you're conservative or liberal. Because Abraham Gileadi, he was a personal friend. Of, he was a personal friend of mine, and I'd had him speak at Sunstone on occasion. But he's not a Sunstone kind of person at all. He's a very conservative theologian. I don't, I don't personally don't agree with his theology. But his, he was slapped because they didn't like his very conservative interpretation of Isaiah. And uh, what were the, who were the others, and why were they? Who, who were the others? September six, and why were they? I think Lynn Whitesides, who had been a chair of the symposium for years, I think it was for some statements she said about women in a Tribune article. Maxine Hanks, I'm, I don't know the particular thing, but she, 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 she'd said many incendiary comments in, in the newspaper as well as at the symposium. Her book on women and authority? I don't think she was excommunicated for that book. Okay. That had been out for quite a while. Uh, but she was very, you know, um, very much an advocate and, and, and almost an agitator like in the Mormon Women's Forum and some other things. Um, Margaret Toscano for her theology. Levina for her chronicling of the uh, organizational abuses of the church. Michael Quinn for his statements on the church, which were at the recent symposium. Oh, and that we published an article earlier about that same time by him in the magazine. What was that article about? Um, Post-manifesto polygamy? No, that was early on. That was dialogue. Okay. That was ten years before that. Um, um, it was on spiritual gifts for women and that whole deal. I I can't remember what it was on. Okay. It was. Um, but we, you know, with Quinn, we published other articles. We published his article on baseball baptisms, you know, which is a hard-hitting history of the church in England in the early '60s, and. Um, it's magic, magic, and uh, folk, folk magic stuff. Magic. Yeah, they've been early, but the church didn't like that either, and they certainly didn't like his hierarchy books. I and mean, there are plenty of things by Michael Quinn that I'm sure. And by this time, they'd already forced him out of BYU, and um, and they were just now telling him enough is enough. We don't want you to have the imprimatur of being a, a, a believing member of the church. You can be a believing non-member, but. Uh, um, all those people who got their notices, and we heard about them one by one. Paul. Oh, of course, Paul Toscano, which he his his articles were often about power and the church became increasingly strident and and harsh about the brethren. Um, um, so they all got their articles one by one, and that was a hell of a month. You know, Lynn, Lynn Whiteside's court was first, and we met. It was in the avenues, and we met at the chapel, and we're on the street, and we had all these candles that we'd put on this little uh, retaining wall that got wax all over it, and we spent the night singing hymns as someone would go in and out of the church to um, find out what was happening with her 
her trial. Um, eventually she was disfellowshipped. Um, Michael Quinn and um, Maxine Hanks chose not to go to their courts, so we didn't have vigils for them. Levina wasn't going to go to her court, but she scheduled a little faith service vigil, not at the time of her excommunication. It was at the White Chapel up across the street from the U.S. from the state capitol. We, she, they rented it, and we all went into, into that. And she had all these speakers, and we sang tons of hymns. And uh, and uh, it was quite an electric evening, and highly charged, and very passionate. People sing. I've never heard people sing hymns with such gusto. And then Paul's court at the um, at his stake center in Holiday. Um, there, the church by then had become more accommodating. They allowed us to run an extension court out into the parking lot, and, and the court went on for the longest time. And we and there was an electric 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 electronic piano there, and Arden Watts pounded out hymns while everyone sang them with gusto, and people would come and bring donuts, and uh, it was kind of a fun, bittersweet, dark comedy of a night while we waited to hear. And eventually it took so long, people went home. And then they came back in the morning, still waiting to hear <laughs> the results of the uh, politics Connell's communication. But it ground everyone down. I and mean, whoever thought you'd be standing holding vigils in church parking lots? And the singing of the hymns took a bittersweet tone on those nights. And, um, you know, were we protesting the church? Or were we just having solidarity with Michael Quinn, with, with um, Paul Toscano? You know, it was, a, it was a fuzzy line. I remember writing about the ambivalence in the magazine and then getting this letter from Scott Card saying that he never could do anything for Sunstone anymore as long as excommunicates would speak at Sunstone like Levina. And, uh, and he, he, um, he lamented that I was protesting my church in a, in a parking lot. Um, and, and then a few years after that, symposiums were very hard to recruit people for. And um, um, and um, that was a, that was a, and people became weary of Mormon studies a lot in the Sunstone group, and many of them probably already were on a journey that would eventually take them outside of Mormonism. That's a very common journey of intellectuals in any religious tradition, and um, this accelerated that journey for a lot of people. So a lot of the regulars no longer cared. You know, and so you call them to even introduce people, and they go, oh, I'm tired of all this. I'm not going to the symposium. So as you couldn't recruit new people to be in Sunstone. No, the, the wall threshold was now so high, new people just like, I don't want to do that. And, um, and the old regulars were either tired or weary, or many of the people were just protecting their jobs at BYU or, or just not wanting to be part of it. And there were some who said, you know, I think the brethren are right. I think this has gone too far. And they'd go back to the more mainstream Mormonism. Uh, but all of those trajectories reduced the, the pool of people who were doing Sunstone. Those were very, very, very difficult years. Uh, and they were compounded by the fact that Sunstone's finances were again in the toilet. Um, Dan, when Daniel re- left after his five years, when he left in 91 or something like that, he left right after, shortly after the State Mountain Symposia, or a year after that. Um, maybe um, he, Sunstone was flush. Uh, 
and out of, totally out of debt, paid off all the debts we inherited from Peggy, which maybe were like two hundred thousand dollars if you had them all. It was a lot of money. Uh, the lots of them were a five thousand dollar debt here and a ten thousand dollar debt here. And Daniel would—he was so incredible on the phone negotiating with people. They, we'd owe them fifteen thousand dollars, and he'd say, "Well, I, I, can, I can pay you three thousand now, and or you'll just have to wait, and you may have to wait forever." And he'd really. Bargain them down to almost nothing to pay off the debts. But um, we'd hired a publisher who wasn't really fit for the job. She was an incredibly wonderful person with great skills, but this wasn't her job. And after her year, we were back in debt, owing tons of money to the IRS again and owing a bunch of other money. And so for those, and when she left, we didn't have any money to hire a new publisher. So I ended up doing the one thing I said I'd never do when I when Peggy offered me the job. I was editor and publisher <laughs> because we didn't have any money to hire anyone, and um, and that's that was sort of the beginning of my uh, emotional decline. I mean, I was I was energetic for those first few for few years, worked myself hard to pay off the IRS debt, which, and and then we discovered not only did we owe maybe forty fifty thousand dollars to the IRS. But she hadn't paid the this hotel bill from the last symposium, and they wouldn't let us sign up for the. They wouldn't let us hold the symposium the next year until we paid off the old one, and I had to pay the next year's symposium in advance. So while I'm paying off the IRS, I have to pay two years of symposium, and I have no money. But I did have a Sunstone American Express card, so sometimes I would like pay the IRS with American Express card, which would hold me for a month. And then I'd have to like raise ten thousand dollars to pay it off for the next month, so then I could charge ten thousand dollars more to the IRS. And eventually, that little Ponzi game, uh, switch and bait, to just hold everyone at bay for a year or two. Um, I, I wasn't able to make my payment to the to American Express for a couple months. Eventually, I did, and uh, so they canceled our card, and I had this huge negative credit rating. <laughs> and. Uh, but but we made it through, you know. And so it was unfortunate that we were really in a tight ship when 1993 came around um, again, and that was to have to dig ourselves out a second time. It's just very very hard. Uh, and with so many people who would personally express me goodwill, but not be willing or able or want to do anything with Sunstone, that was that was very difficult. Um. Tell us about learning about Daniel's passing. Well, once again, I was at a family beach trip in August um, in North Carolina. And once what again... About what year? I had left Sunstone. So maybe it was 2002 or maybe the summer of 2001. 2001 or 2002. Um, and so once again, Peggy Fletcher calls me for a quote for a new story. And she's the one who tells me... Uh, Daniel has died. And that was very hard because Daniel was such a force of life. You know, he, he greeted what he ever, whatever he greeted. It was with wholeheartedness and massive energy. And uh, I remember biking with him once. He, I, I was kind of a lazy, casual biker. And he said, let's go on a bike trip once. And as Pat Bagley once said, Daniel's idea is fun. It's like going up a 90-degree wall on your bike. He was just, just energy. And and he loved outdoors. He'd go skiing with his son and dog up Mill Creek Canyon every Sunday morning. That sort of became his church during the last few years of his life. And um, 
he loves to go mountain climbing and all sorts of outdoor activities. And he was doing, I guess, an activity that was a little too extreme for his ability or a little foolhardy. Uh, he was climbing the person up a cliff, as I understand it, um, that um, was very steep. Uh, this person who he was with was a very experienced climber, and, but who also liked to push things to the envelope. And Daniel was following him, and apparently that person just heard a, uh, uh-oh, and then that's all. Daniel fell and died in the fall off the cliff. Um, there's a beautiful wife, Lisa, and he had. Uh, they basically had two families. They had two children early on, and then they had two children. It was a decade in between the, the first group and the second group. Um, that was very hard. I, I saw him, and we... we in the parking lot at the symposium just before he died. And we spoke for like an hour, hour and a half. I think it was 2002, uh, just standing in the parking lot. It was really a great conversation. And then he was gone in a couple of weeks. That's how Daniel died. But he was living life to the fullest. We were a little over the top, but a great guy. You know, you'd, you'd hate him to dim his light and live a longer life so dim. But damn it, you wish you'd been just a little more careful. So as you look back now, um, are you proud of your time at Sunstone? Or do you look back at it with joy? You know, how do you feel upon reflection, both personally and for the church, about your contributions, yours and Daniel's contributions? Personally, it was a great time. You know, I mean, it was often very hard work and long hours and lonely nights in dark rooms working at computers and stuff. But um, it was such a rich time. You know, I'm kind of a little intellectual, and so, and I'm a, I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a generalist. And so Sunstone allowed me to dabble intellectually in all sorts of disciplines, from sociology to literature to history to anthropology, as you edit this and network with these people. And I, I met so many great people and so many rich friendships and just wonderful souls uh, who really cared passionately about things. And I mean, what a great job. And I like a creative side, and the magazine allowed some creativity, and the pulling together of a magazine, and particularly a symposium, is, is not just a logistical and organizational task, but there's a creative side of who would be the best respondent to this paper, and you try to find just the right person from a different discipline who could put a different light on it. That's such a fun, creative thing, and you take the joy in the one miracle that happens when those two people uh, do do things, and you're really just the, you know, the behind-the-scenes person. But that was great. I loved doing all that. I made, made great friends, and uh, worked hard, and it was fun intellectually. Um, my journey, my religious spiritual journey, while I was very more, a lot more Mormon at the beginning than I am now, or at, was at the end, I journeyed through that. And in that process, I sort of paralleled Sunstone altogether, which causes, I think, some of the tensions in Sunstone now. If you look at the Sunstone that Scott Kenny organized, and the people who were there at Scott Kenny's day, and even in the early Peggy days, they were all true believers from BYU. And they all they were looking, when they say they want to do arts, they want to have arts that celebrate and explore Mormonism and history that celebrates and explore Mormon and, and this sort of stuff. And those people at that time would have never considered publishing many things by excommunicated Mormons or things that would like undermine the faith 
They, but they wanted critical studies. And the trajectory of all those people and all the many other people who joined in that path have come now, so you have a very diverse sunstone. You have a sunstone made up of people who are true believers and go to church and pay tithing and go to the temple, people who sort of believe but are not very active, and people who are cultural Mormons and people who are post-Mormon or non-Mormon or ex-Mormons. And, and you want to bring in the non-Mormon scholars. And it's such a diverse group. And, um, you know, as Art Bassett once said in an article he wrote, how much tolerance can we tolerate? You know, this is a much more diverse group. I came to see it, and, and I'm sure as all politics is personal, so all philosophy is. I came to see this as, uh, Sunstone as, um, an open forum, which I, I base that um, on the discussion of open forum in, um, in, a, in current American politics, which is, you, you have a place where people come and talk, and you want honest discussions from everyone who's interested in this conversation, whether they be non-Mormon scholars or believing Mormons, this sort of stuff. And if they're civil and kind and respectful and want to pursue knowledge and stuff, then things can happen here. And, and I would make the argument that even a true believing Mormon believes that that sort of space is healthy, even though they're making space for people who aren't believing or they're almost uh, or are atheistic. And Gene England really came to tag on that. You know, like, yes, that's what we want. And in the ideal, I think that's what Sunstone should be. I don't really think it's possible for one organization to be an open forum. You know, um, maybe it's possible for one country to be an open forum, but some people like the Nation magazine and others like the National Review, and they're going to go to ones they like. It's really hard to get those kind of people to talk together in the Gene England ideal. And they're not going to like it, people, and they're going to be excommunicating each other within that within the larger national forum, and um, one organization can't do that all. And I experienced that dynamic all the time. You know, there, there were, during the first half of my 15-year tenure at BYU, I went down to BYU every week, and went, like I did at 70th Press, and would roam the halls and drop in on faculty and just really immerse myself. And I became, um, I was surprised initially at how parochial even our best academics can be. You know, people would say to me, you know, that person over there in the English department, they don't understand things, and they're wrong when they write about that, and they're wrong about that, and they're really almost apostate. And we use such strong terms. And they'd say, but, and, uh, but when it comes to this area, their area of discipline, the church is wrong and need to correct it. And so many people see, except for the area in which they think about carefully, everything else being okay in the church, you know, which was a very interesting dynamic. Uh, related to that is, everyone draws the line of appropriateness just on the other side of where they are. <laughs> you know, like, that card, that's fine, but this is off limits. It's sort of right where they are. So they have a hard time tolerating someone who they see is on the other side. And there's always that kind of finger pointing and, and judgment going on. Very few people who would embrace them all. I guess the people who, who were so embracing of different views became my heroes, the Gene Englands and the uh, Bonner Ritchies. They, uh, they had a lot more tolerance for that. But um, organizations are, get their vitality and, and, and maintain their strength and life because a group of people are committed to what that organization is about and they push it forward. And usually it's because they had a little cause aspect. And I didn't like seeing some sort of advocacy of certain causes. We'd allow advocates to speak within our forum, but the only thing Sunstone was at an advocate for was an open, honest forum of civil discussion by res responsible and re thoughtful voices.
And actually, there aren't that many people who are committed to that idea. You know, it's such an abstract idea. Most people are committed to their hobby horse. <laughs> you know, and uh, whether it be gay rights or feminist issues or even Mormon history or something like that. And um, it's, it's, it's a hard dynamic. And uh, so I, and I don't know where Sunstone's going to go with those issues in, in this new Internet age. But, Do you think, um, if you were to give your best pitch for uh, a continuing need, for a place like Sunstone, what would you say today? Um, I think it's their job of an editor. Well, there's two needs. Everyone craves community. And one of the things that Sunstone gives, particularly through the symposium and people attending the symposium, and now I guess through internet connections, is that connection with a person, with an individual. And, uh, and you like being with them, or you like talking to them online, and Sunstone helps provide that need. And that's an essential part of any sort of thing. Um, but the other part is, I would say, um, I, I guess I use the word editor, and by that I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of, lot of words out there in this world. And I take the New Yorker magazine, because I know that the editor's have discriminating tastes, and and they they I'm, they may not print everything I would want to read, but usually what they print is something that I would be comfortable reading because it's rigorous in its thought, or it's good fiction, or it's good poetry, or it's thoughtful, thoughtfulness. So the editor is the filter, and you know anyone who's tried to look up anything on Google knows the task overwhelming task of saying, oh, there are thirty million uh, pages about this topic. You know, I just want something that's of quality. You know, and if, if Sunstone, as magazine ed, good magazine editors do, becomes a filter so that you know that what I, if I want to find something else, if I, if I go to Sunstone, there's a filter. I don't just have someone's offhanded blog. And I don't have something else. Whatever is through the Sunstone imprimatur is, fil- is filtered and it's of quality of thought. And maybe if it's a controversial topic, it will provide me uh, quality quality of thoughts, you know, a plurality of different perspectives that are all thoughtful, that help me sort of see the thing from many different perspectives. And it's a shorthand, you know, you, you go to Wikipedia, but you wince because you're not sure whether it's right or not. And which, which is why I wish Encyclopedia Britannica were online free, because, um, you know, they, they referee and judge. Um, Sunstone in the Internet age, I think, needs to be that kind of filter and editor. And so you, when you enter it, you enter a thoughtful conversation. I know that's hard to do because, um, because to make those things work, you want to be interactive. And, um, you know, uh, and, and if you're being interactive, then you allow a lot of voices and comments, and you get a lot of dumb comments. And, but there must be a way to... to to allow people to go to the quality and still allow the interactive conversation. But, but that's the role of an organization like Sunstone, is a filter, uh, as well as an access, and uh, points you to things that you want to find out. Mm. Teach me to walk in the light of His love. Teach me to pray to my Father me to know all the things that are right. Teach me, teach me to 
child and together we'll learn of his commandments that we may return home to his presence to live in his sight always always to walk in the Show us the way, grace.